You are listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from Western's Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. In this series, join me, Eric Morse, as we uncover the stories of our entrepreneurial legends. These Western founders have revolutionized industries, built recognizable brands, and added richness to lives across Canada and beyond. Discover their origins, their greatest moments, their deepest challenges, and what makes each of them tick. Welcome to the Legend Series. Adversity is an essential part of great stories, and few things spell adversity like muscle damage, broken bones, shoulder and chest injuries. Arriving at Western in the 1970s, David Patch, Patchell Evans, was all set to pursue a degree in business before a horrific motorbike accident intervened. As he took the long road to recovery, Patch discovered the life-changing power of physical health and therapy. Today, as the head of one of the largest health clubs in the world, Patch is helping people across Canada and beyond find the good life. It's, it's quite a business you've, you've built there, Patch, and uh, I want to get to that, but I also want to start, you know, way back maybe early days and, and get caught up uh, with your story, and this is one of our legend podcasts, and uh, we're really happy you joined us today, so thanks so much. Thanks. I guess qualifies a legend. Does that mean I have to be good or old? <laughs> I think you have to be good, and probably old doesn't hurt either. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's just start from the beginning. Was When you were growing up, was being an entrepreneur on your radar? And, and if it was, you know, when was the earliest you kind of thought about that? My, my father died when I was a, a child in a, a car accident that I actually saw. And so my mother had to look after three kids and three boys. So it wasn't a lot of money. So, you know, I never, it never occurred to me, I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. I don't think people talked about it six years ago. Um, what I knew was I didn't want to be hungry. And I knew that my job as the oldest boy was to help look after the family. Okay. So, you know, so at eight or nine, I started to do paper roots and shovel snow when it, you know, cut grass and um, all that kind of stuff. And um, the benefit of that is you could kind of do it on your own time and you could do it as fast and as hard as you wanted to. So you got rewarded if, if you got paid five bucks to cut a lawn, you got rewarded if you did it fast because you made money quicker. Sure. And, uh, and I could make a lot more money that way. I could then I think back then you get paid a, two bucks an hour or something. It was a it was a way to be more successful quicker and when I wanted to. And you started uh, you had a paper route and you kind of even at that time understood leverage. I think uh, you had a couple of kids working for you doing their own paper routes. So in Toronto at the time there was three papers: the Globe, Mail, the Telegram, and the Star. And um, so people bought one or the other. So what I did is I got all the papers on all the streets that I could walk to. And so then when I delivered, I was carrying all the papers instead of just one. So I got rid of the redundancy, right? Right. And then I also noticed that most people didn't like to go to the door and ask for money and go to the door and still someone buy the paper. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I hired other kids that went to school with me to actually deliver the papers. Ah. You know, I still delivered the globe in the morning because not too many kids wanted to get up at five and deliver the globe. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, what happens is when you collect the money, people are worried about people not paying. That's also when you get all the tips. Right. Fair. So, you know, <laughs> that was a good insight. <laughs> you know, and some of these people would actually have all three of my papers. Wow. You know, because some people 
want to read the paper all the time, right? Just, you know, there sure. was no, inter- there was no internet, you know, so, sure. so in every direction I could walk in, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, I had all the newspapers. Wow. Great story. Uh, so then you, you came to Western university, uh, as a student, you came to study business, but something traumatic happened, uh, that changed that path. Can you kind of walk us through that story? Well, there's two part. I don't tell people out very often is in high school, one of the ways I figured out how to make money was to book rock and roll bands. Okay. And so like Friday nights, I used to rent a hall somewhere and, you know, get all my high school students to buddies to party. But in the middle of the summer before university, I booked a big concert and it rained all weekend and I lost all my money. So I came to, actually I went to Huron college and I was walking through the college with my girlfriend at the time. And the um, guy showing us the college says, and here's the cafeteria and it's all you can eat. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, what? <laughs> it's all you can eat. He says, yeah, it's all you can eat. I said, okay, sign me up. <laughs> so that's how I got to Western. Okay. Because right? yeah. I, I thought I could make a lot of money in the rock and roll business. But, you know, I'd lost a bunch. and They had, they had these different uh, government loan programs. And then at Western, I thought, I'm going to take business and learn all about business. And, you know, enrolled in economics and business 20, as it was called back then. I don't know what it's called now. And um, I had this bad motorcycle accident and I ripped apart the right side of my body, you know, tore off my deltoid, broke my clavicle, you know, ripped off my chest muscles. My, my right arm still doesn't go totally straight. Yikes. But I went to the Kennedy Fowler Clinic for physiotherapy a couple of times a week. And I was training. I mean, I was taking rehab, but all these Olympic athletes were around me training like crazy. And I said to David Wise, who was the guy in charge at the time, you know, if I came more often, would I get better? And he looked at me like I was kind of crazy. He says, well, of course, of course we'll get better, right? And so long story short, I ended up coming four hours a day. And so I got off the description of disabled, took up rowing the following fall to build the right side of my right shoulder was about four inches lower than my left. So okay. build it back up. And the experience made me passionate about fitness. And I had all these people help me through that rehab journey. And I thought I could give back that way. And so as like when I got accepted into the business school, I thought, you know, I know I can do business. Yeah. But I need, I need a skill. So I said, I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm going to switch from business kinesiology. And I remember the uh, professor at um, the business school looked at me like I had two heads. Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> right? Well, he probably didn't realize the the extent of your business education had already by that time. No, no, but you know, he said you're going to become a teacher. You know, I said no, no, I'm not going to become a teacher. I'm going to I'm going to look after people's fitness. And he thought I was crazy because you got to remember this was a long time ago. This was 1975, right? Okay. And um, so when I took my kinesiology courses, it was called phys ed at the time. I was focused on I was going to help I was going to help people. Right. So it really drove the focus. And because I'd gotten accepted in the business school, I could take my options, two courses a year in the business school. Even when I went to do my master's in exercise physiology, they let me do that. Oh, great. So I had this unique combination. Right. And then sure. I started a snow plowing business in university and that gave me hands on experience. You know, and then I got the business school to do an analysis on my snow plowing business is one of their, <laughs> which became a case study. Right. Oh, cool. And uh, did you learn anything from that? Well, did you do anything no, good with the case? I learned the process of thinking things out the different papers you took talked about unique selling position well, my unique selling position was i would have the snow plowed by seven o'clock in the morning no matter what 
And I would take small lots that other people didn't want, but charge as much as a big lot. Got it. Because most guys didn't want the inconvenience. Sure. You know, and, then, and then I paid people that were in phys ed with me or on the sport teams with me well because they were going to work all night. But I pay them more for working fast. You know, sure. so if you if you saw someone speeding in the middle of the night in some small lot in London, that was one of my guys. <laughs> right. You know, and but I did it too, right? You, you know, yeah. don't ask people to do things you can't do. So if sure. it's if it snowed, I didn't sleep usually for okay. two or three days. Right. And, and um, but you know, back in 1976, 77, I was making seventy thousand bucks a year going to school. Wow. So you already. Uh... Even, even though you didn't really think of it as entrepreneurship necessarily, uh, you'd figured out a way to, to make money to pay for school and to do a lot of the, you know, the things you were doing outside of school, I'm sure as well. Yeah. And, and then money, borrowing the money, I had five trucks at the time and having established a relationship with the bank. When I went to borrow money for that very first fitness club is, is my banker said, I think that's a stupid idea, but we trust you that you'll pay it back with your snowplow money. Ah, okay. So the, the first 10 years, really, that I had the fitness club business, I still snowplowed. Oh, really interesting. So that I, could, I lived off that, not off the business. So tell me about buying that first uh, first gym. It was a gym that you were a member of. Is that is that right? Yeah, I was training for the Olympics, and the Olympic rowing team said, if you want to keep your carding, that's money the government gives you if you're a high-level athlete. If yeah. you want to keep that, you need to work out of this Nautilus fitness club. Okay. So I'm going to this place. I thought, I don't need this. You know, I, I'm doing all this stuff in phys ed. What do I need these guys? You know, <laughs> he talks and I went and worked out. And I found out this circuit style of equipment. Mm-hmm. T- intense training was really good. And so I would ask the guy a lot of questions. I would ask questions about training and ask him questions about his business. And I was had done my th- uh, thesis in fourth year on opening up a squash club. And I'd done all the analysis of it at the time. So I, I was asking him some pretty pertinent questions and he looks at me and he goes, you asked me damn questions. Why don't you just buy this business? <laughs> All right. No, at the time I didn't, I thought of him as a lot older, but he was only about 10 years older than me. And his daughter now works for me, this gentleman. That's right? fun. But, you know, at the time, you know, he was in a different industry and he just thought, I'll open this up. They were opening up across the country and it'll be easy. Well, nothing's easy, right? Right. And you got to right. be into it. So I opened it up and everyone said, what are you going to do different? I said, well, I'm actually going to look after people. I'm actually going to get them in shape because fitness clubs back then were focused on selling memberships and not on changing lives. And that became my model. We're going to change your life for the better. Right. You know, and and that's that cultural difference of making it a reward for the time you put into exercise and making sure you got results. That's how we grew from one club to, you know, almost 500. That's amazing. It's amazing. Were were there other experiences uh, while you were at university that kind of shaped your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah. uh, You know, when I, when I think of the different things, I think of the case study program that they use. I assume they still do that at the school. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I learned to think how people can think differently about the same thing. And, and weirdly enough, is I went to Huron College, as I mentioned, and they had all these courses I didn't take at Western. I took at Huron, and they were all liberal arts courses. Sure. And, you know, I took a few courses in philosophy and sociology, which I never would have occurred to me to take. That's and then we thought, you know, they were labeled bird courses, you know, really easy. <laughs> but what, what they did is really make you think. 
Absolutely. Right. And when I took the case studies and the liberal art stuff, and I started to think, how can you make a difference in people's lives? Because, yeah. you know, I thought anybody can do a business. You know, that's kind of arrogant to think, but I thought if you're going to do a business, what I learned from the snow plowing was what was my unique selling position going to be in people's hearts and in their bodies? Okay. Right. Wow. How, how do I make their leisure and their physical activity, their social activity, their psychological activity, all make their lives better, you know, and created a, a culture in the company aimed at improving people the way they wanted to improve, you know, and, and then I took all kinds of courses in sales okay. because as an athlete in a business school, you get arrogant and you think you know how to do it. Right. Right. The world's your oyster at that point. Right. Yeah, but when you actually go out and try to sell something, I quickly figured out that I wasn't, you know, I was telling people I wasn't selling. I wasn't getting inside of their heads and their hearts. So I took all the top motivational salespeople in the world back then. I went to virtually every course. So I thought of that as my independent study, right? And so I took the background that I had at the business school, the background I had in the liberal arts, and then the school of hard knocks, which is how do you actually make it work? Yeah. And put them all together, right? Yeah, fantastic. So I guess that was entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's a good yeah. education. In it. Yeah. There, yeah, was a great, there was a great professor. I took a course in entrepreneurship at the school. Mm -hmm. I took it in the master's program. And there's a great professor there. Um, his name was Russ Knight. Yeah. Right. Do you know Russ? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd go back every once in a while and I'd say, Russ, what do you think? <laughs> you know, you know, and you know, and I bounced stuff off him, and then he, he gave me the. We had used my snowplowing business as a case study, and then when I was going to open up my second club, we used it as a case study for business. Oh wow! Business course. Yeah, I got so much out of that, right? Because now I was in defending myself, my ideas against people that were only a couple years younger than me, in most cases a lot smarter. <laughs> oh, I right? know about that. <laughs> but you know, um, to have that challenge to your way of thinking was really useful yeah you know and sometimes teaching is is such a such a great way to learn right because you just have to think about it in ways that maybe you wouldn't otherwise yeah it's not just a great way to learn is if the teacher asks you the right question right i think that's the gift of the teachers that you have there is they ask the right question yeah. and that makes you learn right yeah and you know the the fun thing about the case method for me anyways patch is that uh, you know, hopefully I'm asking good questions of my students, but, but I always find I learn something new every time I teach a case uh, uh, from, their, from their creative way of thinking about a problem. And as you said earlier, everybody thinks about it a little differently, and that's, that's uh, so much fun for sure. Well, it's when I read your resume, I thought, okay, here's a guy that has thought about what people are thinking about. Ah, well, thanks. I tried. <laughs> hey, well so you bought that first club in 79 um how do you go from one club to 450 the best known brand in canada uh, you know what's what led to that transition that growth well the first thing you have to do in my case i didn't have very many staff as you have to do i had one staff part-time <laughs> so <laughs> you, you have to do everything yourself right right you know and one of the hardest jobs i learned was cleaning the whirlpool when it was 20 degrees below zero. <laughs> As, you know, the, the filter was on the outside wall. Oh, God. I reach it from outside. So, you know, so I learned a little bit about construction that way, right? Sure. And then I, I've, as I went through my lease that I inherited from the previous owner, I realized 
this is so one-sided. Yeah. You know, and so I had to learn how to read leases. So here I had to learn how to make a whirlpool work. Then I had to learn how to negotiate with the landlord and say, this is unreasonable. This was a major graduate degree, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. You You had to know the nuts and bolts of how to do something. And you had to know the literal part of how to interpret the two things, right? Mm-hmm. And then people would come in to sell you advertising. Okay. And you quickly realize, I don't have a clue, <laughs> right? So I joined things like the Advertising and Sales Club. Okay. So, so that I would, you know, and the concept that you have in school of continuous education, that's what you start, you got to put in practice, right? Right. So you, I joined the Advertising and Sales Club and I learned, oh, I need to network. Right. Right. And I need to make contact with people. Oh, this is what sales is. I need to take these courses, right? Yeah. And um, and then I come back, quite honestly, to the business school library. And um, I said, okay, this is what I need to know. Take out four books. And the, the same diligence about, you know, that you would have, how do you understand this physiology problem? Yeah. And this business problem. I had this unique way of looking at things from a business school perspective and an exercise physiology perspective, you know, because... I trained in how do I get people in the best shape of their lives in such and such a period of time. And I applied that same logic of, I want to run a marathon on this day is I want to open a business on this day. And what are all the backward steps to do, right? The combination of skills really worked out well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how did you go about, I mean, I think you've really changed the person of gyms across the country, right? Uh, that. They, they were always fragmented. It was kind of always one-offs. There were a couple of chains, but they didn't have the best reputation. How, how did you tap a piece of it? Well, I started off with having core values for the company. And the number one core value is caring. Yeah. And, you know, we'd grown to about 20 clubs and we were being influential, but there was this negativity that came from many other clubs not operating ethically, as you're just implying, right? So I created a thing called the Canadian Association of Fitness Professionals. Oh, okay. I knew I couldn't change the ownership's mind, but I could influence everybody that worked for them. Okay. Interesting. And I knew if I made everyone in the industry get better, no, not made, but gave the opportunity for any, everyone in the industry to get better, people being what people are, people in the fitness industry want to help people. Like if it's like a teacher, it's like yourself. If you didn't want to help people, you wouldn't continue to do this, right? Right. Absolutely. And so people that stay in the fitness industry, Inside of them, they want to help people. So the, the role of CanFit Pro Canadian Fitness Professionals was provide courses, materials, opportunity for instruction to develop people's talent, to deliver what they want to deliver when it didn't exist. It's one thing to take a course in school. It's another one to know how to deliver it to a person. Sure. So I got people said to me, well, why are you creating these courses? They're going to educate all your comp- competitors. I said, my job is to stay ahead of my competitors. No matter what, whether the course exists or not. But if the whole industry can get better, then I'm going to be, I'm going to do okay too. There's no way I can run all the fitness clubs in the country. (laughs) It's unrealistic, right? Right. So, because there are low barriers to entry to running a fitness club, you know, in terms of, it's not like a telecom company, right? So um, by educating everybody, then everybody became better. Yeah. More Canadians become fitter, which was my goal anyways. Right. Sure. It helped on all, on all fronts. Yeah. And you really became the leader in the industry. So, you know, by doing that, more people are going to want to work with you for you and, and hopefully join the gym as well as that trickles down. 
Yeah, we became a leader in the industry in Canada, but Campit Pro is the fitness leader in the world. Yeah, that's fantastic. Right. You know, so I have the most clubs of a single individual anywhere in the world. Is that right? Oh, I yeah. didn't know that much. I can't think of an organization of 20 clubs or more owned by one person. But I'm also one of the few people with a practical degree, like mm-hmm. kinesiology, phys ed, that runs fitness clubs. Because a, a lot of times people don't combine the two talents, right? Right. No, and I think it's that combination that you've had through your work and, and through education that uh, has, has really set you apart that way. Yeah. I mean, and the university, quite honestly, created that melting pot that allowed me to get these things. What, what lessons might you have learned, uh, you know, going from one to 450, or it's more than that now, I think, uh, you know, any lessons that you would share in terms of how do you grow that quickly or, or things that uh, you had to learn along the way? All kinds. So for me, the key was how do you do one club as good as you can? Yeah. And basically, I always think of my business as one member at a time, right? So I always want to keep every member. Mm-hmm. So I, but everyone's important. And I, and I try to think medically, professionally, like every life counts, right? Absolutely. With that attitude, you develop enough people in one location, you can open a second. Now, you can make more money if you have one location and one lo- more money per location if you just focus on one location. But it's not convenient for the population. If, you know, if I just had one location in West London, for example, yeah, and, and people from East London would have to travel away. So then the next stage was build it and then build it conveniently, mm-hmm. build more, you know, and that led to being dominant in London. Then it led to be dominant in different parts of Ontario, then dominant in Ontario, then dominant in Canada. You know, and I, quite, I took the same techniques down to New Zealand and we're now, you know, we've been there four years and we're the biggest group of clubs in New Zealand. Well, one of the things we talk about a lot, Patch, in entrepreneurship is the, this idea of what got you here may not get you there. Uh, and we often talk about talent on the, the management team, the systems, uh, the processes you have in place. Um, you know, can you tell me about that? Uh, you know, how did you get your operation so that you could handle, you know, clubs across the country? I, I was in the sport of rowing, right? Now I had played hockey and I played football and stuff like that. And rowing, you can only go as fast as everybody in the boat. So it doesn't matter how great you are individually. The boat mm-hmm. won't go any faster if everyone's not going together. <laughs> right. So that, that was my attitude toward business. And then I tried to surround myself with people that were better at different things than I was. Like early on, um, a, a guy that was a, a fireman, his name was John Conley. His, and his wife, he's, he's passed away now, but his wife still works with me, Diane. He saw me working fixing fitness equipment. He says, it's driving me crazy watching you try to do that. Let me do it <laughs> Right. So he became my second employee and he was fixing equipment for me on inside. But he was really into computers. Okay. You know, I'd get all these checks and I, every month I'd be writing all these checks. And he saw me doing that one night at three o'clock in the morning. He goes, well, why don't you just put that on a computer? <laughs> now, this was 1980. Okay. But John on the side had become great at computers. Back, back then there were radio shot computers. So we were actually, we created a system for doing withdrawals before the mortgage companies were doing it. Wow. You know, so it was this technical side of implementing it, right? Yeah. And then I'm pr- a pretty driven person and I'm go, go, go all the time. And I need someone to balance me out. Mm-hmm. And I had a great employee who was working for me. And her, her name's Jane Riddell. She graduated from Western too. 
She was a high-level athlete at Western. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was really kind of like the yin to my yang. And she believed in the same stuff, but then she would say, okay, here's how we implement it piece by piece. Okay. And I, did, I didn't have time to do the piece by piece. Right, stuff. right. I'm running. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I'm running. And, and Jane would make sure this stuff got followed through and got followed up on, right? Uh, absolutely. Critical. And so, and she's, Jane's still with me. Right? Oh, fantastic. She's second in charge of the company. So that led to developing great people that stay with you. So in my upper management team, if you came from the fitness side, there's nobody in the upper management team that hasn't been with me 20 plus years. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's a real statement. And when they've come from other sides, like uh, Pat Jacqueline, who's my CFO, you know, she's been with me, I think, 20 years, too. That speaks a lot to your culture, Patch. Uh, you know, can you tell me more about the importance of, of culture and how do you keep people around that long? People don't want to leave. People don't want to go places. If your culture is fun, it really helps. So, you know, I'm the chief entertainment officer, right? <laughs> So back to your rock and roll days. Yeah. But <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, I enforce constantly that we're tens. We have to be tens to help people become tens themselves. Okay. You know, I teach people about how to engage with people, talk to them and elevate their spirit. And that culture is one of the things that keep everybody in the company. Most people want to have lives of meaning. So if I, if I do the right things, they can fulfill the purpose they have to have a life of meaning inside the environment of our clubs. Right. 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 So the, the first person you have to look after is your staff. And if you look after your staff, they'll look after your members. And I want, the, you know, and I want the members to be looked after the way I'd want to be looked after. Absolutely. So it's just care for each other. Right. Yeah. You know, Happiness is one of our values. Perseverance is one of our values. Integrity, right? Um, Fitness, of course. You know, so all these things are crucial and important to the picture. Yeah, and I, you know, gosh, we've been through so much over the last 18 months now. That culture, I'm sure, has been a big part of what's seen you through. Um, But if we think about this past year, global pandemic, it's not your first crisis. It's your toughest, given that the government forced you to shut down. How do you lead during a crisis? You, you got to believe. You know, the, the key part of, of my success has been believing in myself and making other people believe in themselves. And let's believe in ourselves as a team. Okay. So you got to believe that these things are temporary. It's like injuries. I'm, I'm injured. I will get better. You know, I have to do the rehab. Yep. I have to do the training. I have to work out but I will get better if I do those things. So with COVID, it's, you know, let people know you have their back. Let them know you get it. You know, make sure you pay the same price they do. Like when COVID started, we paid our people for two weeks, even when we had to close. Yep. And I, I stopped paying myself then and I still not pay myself. And does that make a difference? Everything makes a difference. Sure. But psychologically, it makes a huge difference, right? It's no different than when I started be able to do every job and be in everybody's shoes. So I don't agree with the way we've done things. I believe fitness is a right. The, the, the opportunity to look after your health should not be taken away from people. There are ways to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, So I think that's been totally done wrong. 
a lot of people suffered because of it, I think mentally and obviously physically, but uh, I think mental health, uh, a lot of us, myself included, you know, need the workout. Yeah, well, they've proven for 50 years that if you exercise on a regular basis, you make 20% more money, 20% more productive, 20% happier, minimum. Wow. Right? You know, we know, and this is one of the failures of our school system, if kids exercise on a regular basis, they get better marks. Right. Oh, but what do we do? We cut back on phys ed, right? Yeah. And think, you know, something magic's going to happen. It's not, <laughs> right? People's level of self-esteem is higher when their bodies work, right? And it's Absolutely. not about having a perfect body. It's about having a functional body. Because when you have a functional body, you have a functional brain. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, I've heard you in the past talk about activity and how important it is to, just to the regular operation of your business. It's had to be really hard to, to keep that up uh, throughout the pandemic and, and keep your, you know, your top team positive about what the future is going to hold. Totally, it's hard. But I mean, running a marathon is hard, but you can do it. Right? I, virtually anybody can run a marathon if you can run a mile. And if you can't, walk a mile. And then you'll learn how to run a mile. And then, but it's having the tenacity to put one foot in front of the other, right? So my people have been incredible at just saying, okay, Sun came up today. What are we going to do? One of my favorite quotes is Leonard Cohen. The door's got a little crack or the window's got a crack. I can't remember how it goes. That's how the light gets in. Right. Right. So you just got to look for any glimmer of hope. Boy, people up, right? Yeah. So if there's a, if COVID's going crazy in Alberta, how's it doing in PI? So in Alberta, we could be like PI really soon. You know, right. I wrote a thing called the 21 Leaders Guide to Resilience. Okay. Guide to Resilience, right? So at the start of COVID, I said, okay, what am I going to do? So I started getting up two hours earlier. I got 10 developments, psychologically improving, motivating books. And I would read five pages, 10 pages, 20 pages out of each one, all from different walks of life, right? And I'd read these and then I'd jot down notes. So every morning for the first three months, my morning was focused on how to be better. So then I wrote this guide and I shared it with my staff and with anybody that wanted it. Oh, you cool. Know, if anybody wants it, they can have it. But it was about taking 21 minutes a day to set your day up for success. Wow. Nice you know, a little, little bit of stretching, a little bit of minute, minute of meditation, minute of thinking about this, that kind of stuff. With the whole idea, it was like exercise for the heart. Yeah. Heart, mind, body. Um, but to, to move you to that stage so, so you would be hopeful. Yeah. And you've got everybody, it's, you know, back to that culture thing. Everybody is trading on something, doing a shared experience and looking, you know, uh, in a, towards the future. I think that's uh, tremendous. Yeah. It's, as you know, you have to be a student in history too, right? Yeah. So this isn't the first plague. Europe in the Middle Ages was devastated by half the population or more being killed, right? Right. How do we not have that happen? Yeah, for sure. And then... How did people get out of it? So I talk about the roaring 20s are coming. All right. So, so 100 years later, but the next roaring 20s are coming, right? You know, yeah, and, yeah. And then I talk about, you know, people realize now that the hospitals are not designed for your health. They're designed for you when you're sick. Right. So your job is not to go in the hospital. Yes. <laughs> right? It's not to go in the hospital and find out, you know, how to get unsick. Your job is not to go there in the first place, you know, and you can be 
the unlucky one that gets cancer. You can be the unlucky one that gets something else. But all those things are reduced if you're healthy. Right? Uh, absolutely. And your mental attitude is a big factor of this. Your mental attitude can only be positive if your physical capability is positive. Absolutely. Right? And which is why I believe fitness should be considered an essential human right. So to get through COVID, it's, it's like getting through a marathon. Same deal, right? One step at a time. One step at a time. You don't <laughs> know what's coming up. So this is like a marathon over a mountain through a stream <laughs> in the dark. Right. 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 And all we know is that there's a finish line, but we don't know where it is. Yeah. That's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. We know that it'll finish because it always has. Yep. Just and where that finish want, line we is. We want to be standing here and healthy when it finishes. Yeah. Financially, spiritually, intellectually, socially, that kind of stuff. And so it's the balance of all those things all the time. Absolutely. Like, how do you make a prudent financial decision so your business is still here in three months, six months, whatever it is, and also a decision that is for the positivity of the people who work for you and for your members? Yeah, that's hard. That's the, that's the daily, that's my daily grind. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm the, sure. The, the opposition forces. So let's look forward now a little bit. Uh, you know, four decades you've been doing this, Good Life Fitness. You've built an amazing business uh, that affects, you know, people in their daily lives. What keeps you going? You know, I didn't get in the business to make money. Because uh, uh, I kind of thought I would make money from my snowplowing business. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, as I developed it, I thought, okay, you can make money doing this. Mm-hmm. But you're only going to make money if you make a difference in people's lives. So I was so lucky before I read about it, I was doing what I loved. You know, so I would have done it for free, right? So that takes us forward to now is my job now is to prepare my successors. You know, so I spend my learning curve preparing it. And it, it goes back to when um, I was picked Entrepreneur of the Year in Canada about 10 years ago. And uh as I was talking to him at the time, they said, you're the only guy who hasn't sold. Ah, okay. Right. And I said, well, how did I get picked then? He says, because you've grown so much, you've learned how to be somebody different at each stage. Right. So, so now my job is to leave a legacy inside the people that work at Good Life. So if, you know, I fall off a mountain hell skiing, things are looked after, right? Right. And, um, so that's what I'm learning to do. And for an entrepreneur, that's really hard. Yeah. Because you want to go do it. So I'm trying to think, okay, how do I become entrepreneurial about creating people with different skill sets that can run the company? So yeah. no one's going to know all the stuff I know because they didn't start from nothing. Right. And go to right. where they are, right? And it's illogical that one person could do all that stuff anymore. But if I can develop in all the different components of the industry, the same attitude of caring, mm-hmm. whether whether you're driving our technology or driving our construction or driving our people department, if everyone's got the commonality of culture, then they can fulfill the mission of their particular part of the business. Yeah. You said something I think is really important there, Patch. I mean, you've gone through a trajectory, right? A, a life journey that, that no one else has. And so you have a body of knowledge that's different. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand the patience that it often takes for an entrepreneur to, to build that team below them because 
you, you know, you forget, oh gosh, yeah, it took me 10 years to learn that. That was 30 years ago, but it took me a long time to learn that. And so there's some patience that, that goes along with building that team. And, and I think the entrepreneurs that build the best teams, you know, recognize that and, and give time to their teams to really make it work. Yeah, so you've always interviewed a few. <laughs> right, so you know, you're you're absolutely right. It is patience. Yeah. Right. It, it, you know, and and the risk I see in the classification of entrepreneurship now, yeah. sometimes it, that gets mixed up with get rich quick. Right. And so when people talk about being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur right now, I often think they think they're going to be a tech entrepreneur, come up with an idea, and get rich quick. Right. Bill Gates did not get rich quick. No. Right. You know, Steve Jobs did not get rich quick. Yeah. And I like to remind people that 99.9% of all business started are not tech businesses. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and 95% of businesses fail by the fifth year. Right. Right. So it really, if you're going to work for yourself and be an entrepreneur, pick something that you actually really care about. Because if you're thinking about how to cash out, you're probably never going to cash out. Yeah. But I think that's a great lesson for our students and, and for all entrepreneurs, frankly, uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to take time. And so you better love it. Yeah. And, and you've got to like people. Yeah. You're not going to do this by yourself. No. Right? If let's say you're really good at engineering and not so good with people, get some people on your team that make up for your weaknesses. The number one thing with an entrepreneur is to get people that back up your weaknesses. And your weaknesses might be stronger than most people in that area, but they're not the level of, if you want to be huge and great at your business, your, your strength becomes a weakness unless you have people that are better at you than you. Right. Like surround yourself with people that are better at you. Because yeah. the skill set of being an entrepreneur is that weird ability to see something that other people don't see and create something. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, people aren't going to agree with you. <laughs> and at the same time, you got to be willing to sit back and say, okay, they don't agree with me. Should I be listening harder? Yeah, that's a and great that's skill. Same, same patience you talk about, right? Absolutely. You know, so it's great that people talk about being entrepreneurs. And, you know, one of the things that they need to think about is leading with your heart, not your head. Yeah, uh, you got to have both, right? And, and too yeah. many people leave one at the door, for sure. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really matter what it is because... You're going to deal with people. Yeah. Even if you're making robots. <laughs> There's people somewhere in that. Somebody's business. going to buy the robot, right? <laughs> you know, so it's, it, there's always a sale involved. Yeah. There's, which means there's always a connection with people involved. Patch, this is, this has been a lot of fun for me. Uh, what, what's one last thing that you might share with uh, our listeners, whether they're students or, or maybe somebody a little bit later in life thinking about, you starting up a business. I would think about how you're also going to give back. Okay. So one of the things I noticed is even when I started the business, we, we, we funded charities, yeah. charities, you know, um, I was in the boys and girls club group, for example, a nonprofit in my area, right. That I could make a difference. So think about ways that you're going to give back ways you can socialize and give back. I didn't know it at the time, but when I look back, it has two major benefits. You create a social group outside of your work group. Yep. And, and when things are shitty, and there will be shitty times, yep. that social thing you've done also fills up your heart. Absolutely. 
like my business helps people. And if you're doing something you really love, it's almost always going to help people in some way. Right. So if you're, if so, if you can say to yourself on the darkest days, I'm helping the people that work for me, I'm helping the people that buy whatever we sell, and I'm also giving back in some way. Yep. You know, I've tried to give back in a lot of different ways over a period of time. And I look back when I was given a PhD from Western, it was in recognition of all the stuff I'd given back. It was so it's so interesting because they weren't giving me this degree because I'd been awesome in business. It was because I'd taken some of that talent and given back to people. And then I was so lucky. The chancellor was Joe Rotman. And uh, he and I got to talking and I said, I asked him what you just asked me, what motivates you? And he says, come and see me. Oh yeah. Cool. So I went and saw him on my birthday. Okay. He spent like four hours with me telling me a story. Wow. He says, he says, Patch, the best part of my life was after I was 60, when I started to spend more of my time giving away money than making it. Oh, that's cool. Right? And after he died, about three or four months after he died, I sent a letter to his wife, just telling her how much I appreciated that day. Oh, wow. So I, I, I happened into that by accident. One of the first things at, at Western, they had a Special Olympics thing, uh, the Winter Special Olympics. And um, it was like, early on in the first year and I volunteered. And so um, I had this boy that I was looking after who was only, a, I think a year or two years older than me. He had downs and he was super nice and I had a great day teaching him how to cross country ski and everything. It was all Western, right? So I went back to your college, I'm having dinner that night and I'm telling the group that I'm with about my great day at the Special Olympics, right? And then the woman sitting across from me, her name was Sue Cowan, but her name is Sue Cowan now the man who became her husband was a good buddy of mine. He's on one side of me and they had been childhood sweethearts from Sarnia, Ontario. And they both looked at me kind of funny and said, what was his name? And I said his name. And he says, that's my brother. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. Right. So fast forward, like, uh, would have been three, 25 years later, mm. I have a special needs daughter, wow. you know, has severe autism. And, um, I'm getting people to help me with this. And sure. Sue's one of my first volunteers. Wow. Right. Wow. So that's great. I didn't, you know, I didn't know at different times I'd been drawn to help the special needs community. Yeah. That I would end up 30 years later, lucky enough to have a special needs kid of my own. Sure. And that special needs kid taught me half the stuff that has made my business successful. And the yeah. number one thing it taught me, you talked about patience. Yeah. And it taught me to focus on happiness. It is amazing, Patch. It is a circle, right? And I and yeah. I think you know people, and especially aspiring entrepreneurs, too often lose sight of that. Uh, you know, your reputation is critical. Your your network is critical. Your you know that idea of social capital, which I, I think is kind of what you're talking about, and giving back, and you know, all of those things help you so much as an entrepreneur in ways that that you can never know, and 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 as a person as well, as you've pointed out. And there's a fun side to it too. It's like, I'm sitting, we're doing, we have conferences all the time for our staff. And I'm sitting beside a woman, Rochelle, who's helped organize our conference. And she's fairly new to our company a couple of years. And she's talking, I looked at her and said, did you work at the Seeps? <laughs> and, you know, for people listening to this aren't from London, the Seeps is yeah. like the beverage, beverage institution of London. That's right. For many and, years. <laughs> and I used to work there. Okay. Right. And so 
Seeps is a very fun place to work, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I tried to keep that culture in good life. But I, so her job was to help at this conference, make sure we had fun. Perfect. And so I'm sitting, I get to talk to her and I go, no wonder. Yeah. Right. Like what you're talking about, it, it, what goes around comes around, right? Absolutely. You know, and Rochelle is still with me doing a great job. Yeah. You know, and we're still a fun company to work for. Because I start off every call with on a scale of one to 10, what are you? Our people in good life believe in themselves. Yep. Then they can influence other people to believe in themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a great business. You know, I can't wait to see what the next four decades brings and, and wish you all the best and uh, share your positivity in, in terms of getting through the, the tough times we are right now. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Uh, you bet, Patch. Thanks so much. Take care. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.